Welcome to Postcards from the Kitchen. And today we're interviewing Ed Arnett. He is CEO of the Wildlife Society. And we're going to talk about all things hunting and conservation and food, of course. So, Ed, welcome to the show. Hey, Lane. It's great to see you again. Hope you're doing well today. Good to see you. I am. And so as long as we're here, let's tell everybody how we know each other. I know Ed through conservation. He and I worked on bat conservation in the past, and he has gone on to fulfill his current role as CEO. So when I started thinking about who to interview, and especially when it comes to conservation and food and hunting and old traditions like that, we have changing modern attitudes about that, right? And so I thought that might be one interesting place to just dive in and say, talk to me about what's going on. What are the current attitudes on conservation and hunting? What what resistance are you seeing out there? And what do you say to people? Well, it's a lot to cover and a lot to unpack in all of that. But I think the bottom line is, you know, hunting has been with humans since the beginning of humans. No matter whether you're a creationist or or an evolutionist, humans have been have been pursuing uh, animals for food for since the beginning of time, and they celebrate that as well. And we'll get into some of that later. I suspect uh, you've been to my annual beast feast party. Um, we uh, we celebrate the harvest and we celebrate food, um, and that varies depending on culture, of course. Uh, Native Americans uh, have different views than perhaps um, other cultures and, and so on and so forth, other did indigenous peoples and such. But we all celebrate food uh, in some way, shape, or form. And I think the changing in attitudes, particularly with urban, a lot of urban folks, they become more disconnected with nature. And they think um, you go down to the grocery store and that's where you get your food. And there's no need to kill animals for food anymore when you can just go down and uh, and purchase it at the store. And interestingly enough, that was one of Aldo Leopold, uh, the, the founder of the modern uh, wildlife management profession, great conservationist. I would tell all of your readers and listeners to uh, get this book right here. It happens to be sitting in front of me, a Sand County Almanac. It's a great read. And one of Leopold's greatest fears was that people would someday think that Heat comes from the furnace and breakfast comes from the grocer. And his point there was that people, as they become disconnected from nature, lose that context of the land, the land ethic, and the interconnectedness of, of wildlife and, uh, and wild places uh, with human existence, really. And so that's a, a long way of saying things have changed quite a bit, but, you know, more recently, what I've noticed is uh, fewer people are hunting statistically, but there's still 14 plus million Americans that do. And then we're talking very specific to America or still go out and purchase a hunting license and go hunt. Um, I, for one, um, my family and I are not 100 percent wild game, but we're pretty darn close. Um, and I like knowing where my food comes from. And I think that's been a big trend in those that accept hunting. They've made that stronger connection with food. You know, we still see in the polls and I, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but 70 plus percent of Americans still support hunting, particularly as it relates to food procurement 
it's when you start getting into the concepts of trophy hunting and and hunting large carnivores that's when it gets a lot dicier and a little less supportive but i think by and large we're still seeing that people do support hunting it's as organic as it gets there's there can be nothing more organic than going out and harvesting your own your own food and procuring it with your own two hands and you might yeah and tell me more about how the how hunters play into conservation why I consider them the original conservationists. So tell me more about that. That's a great point. And, and, uh, you know, though they really are, um, some would argue historically that it was hunters that uh, started the decimation, and they did, of, of a lot of game species through open market hunting and no, no game laws or anything. But sportsmen, at least then sportsmen, but now sportsmen and women self-regulate through our, our system of laws. Um, they were self-imposed back in the day where the sporting groups realized that the first the first organizations that started forming Boone and Crockett Club and some local rod and gun clubs self-imposed their own regulations, realizing they were having a serious impact on the resource. And then as those laws started uh, coming into play, the Lacey Act, which outlawed market hunting, and then... Um, you know, uh, other other types of laws that um, were put into place at the state level to impose seasons and bag limits, all those kinds of things. Then they started becoming the conservationists and then paying for it. The Pittman-Robertson Act, which is an 11% excise tax on firearms and ammunition, uh, goes directly into conservation. It's an earmarked fund that pays uh, directly into the states for conservation. Uh, the Duck Stamp Act back in the 30s that was instituted, uh, almost all of that money goes into the purchase of wetlands or restoration of wetlands in some way, shape, or form, and then sale of licenses. So those accumulate to lots of dollars. Um, and more and more, we see dollars from the non-hunting public going into conservation. I mean, we all pay taxes. And Congress appropriates money into the land management agencies and the refuge system and some of those kinds of uh, uh, endeavors where those monies are are allocated to. But sportsmen and women still pay a tremendous amount of money into conservation. Yeah. And I'll tell you, um, so my dad was one of those people that was traditionally a hunter, a fisherman. And that's the tradition that I grew up with. And he took good care of the resource. But what I remember most is going out with him. We were prim primarily hunting quail if we went hunting for, for birds. Uh, he didn't do a lot of um, like deer hunting or anything like that, but he went bird hunting a lot and he would take us with him. So we got to spend time with our dad outside. Uh, we learned about working with the dogs and you know we learned about hunting and what it took to come home and clean all those birds and have cats sitting nearby waiting for a little snack. Um, and then also on the fishing site. So I grew up on a, a lake that was founded for hunting and fishing. And we had trot lines. And again, we were getting up at the Caracadon before we went to school and going out and running trot lines for catfish. And so we did get a lot of our food from that. So it's the experience of spending that time with my dad, I think, that that makes that special in many, many ways. It was the experience of being outdoors and learning how things work. And it was the experience of coming back to the kitchen 
and having these special meals together. So I think that's why I was fascinated with your Beast Feast too, because it was, it's a celebration and it's a time when you bring people together around food. Yes. And you, you have created a moment together that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And we had that as a family. So tell me, tell us more about Beast Feast. Well, you know, and if I may, just to back up very quickly, because you hit on something really important is that that tradition, that family connection and those experiences. I, I probably I don't know if I would have become a wildlife biologist had my grandfather not taken me hunting when he was a uh, when I was a small child, long before I could even legally hunt. So just being able to go with him and experience the outdoors garnered my love for nature and my and I know that sounds like a a paradox or maybe even an oxymoron to some that how do you hunt and love wildlife but i don't i don't know very many i don't know any sporting uh individuals that that dislike wildlife i mean they're very passionate they're very connected to the outdoors and they want to sustain populations through space and time and not just yes. so they can use them but so other people can enjoy them too and a lot of those hunting dollars that go into conservation uh, support non-game wildlife and other uh, offer other opportunities yes. for non non-hunting wildlife. But that family connection and those experiences is really what led me to become a wildlife biologist. I loved the outs outdoors. I loved nature. I loved hunting, and I and I loved animals. And that's why I became a biologist in large part. And a lot of people do. the The food angle. You know, it's interesting because when I was growing up, we ate everything we 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 killed. Yeah. Uh, but it was it wasn't really connected to anything special. So for example, in my family, Thanksgiving was a very traditional Thanksgiving. Um at you know, the closest thing to a harvest was maybe my grandpa went out to a local farmer and picked out his turkey and and then harvested it that particular day, you know, but it wasn't a wild turkey. We didn't even have wild turkeys where I grew up at that time. Uh, now through restoration activities funded by the sporting community largely, um, we have turkeys and a lot of them in, in my hometown yeah. area, South Central Illinois. But we didn't really have special gatherings uh, to eat. We'd, we'd, you know, have hamburgers one night or we'd eat roast or, or, or fried squirrel or whatever we were eating at the time. But it wasn't anything like a special gathering. It was only when I got to college, and it was in 1983, I remember it very well, when I was going to Montana State University, the professor that I was working with pretty closely invited me to this thing they called the Beast Feast. And so I showed up, and I had a dish that I brought, but everybody was to bring a dish. It was a potluck for all practical purposes. Everybody brought something. And they had a guest, they happened to have a guest speaker that night and everything. And I went every year through college. And then when I went to uh, University of Wyoming to school, I kind of carried on that tradition and somebody had some sort of a feast and it just grew and grew. And and it's something I've been doing literally since 83 and 1983 in one way, shape or form. And then I started hosting my own gatherings in 1994. So by the time I, by the time you hired me, <laughs> by the way, back up some, <laughs> and I showed up in Texas, um, I was a seasoned veteran of hosting uh, the Beast Feast. And at that time, it was basically whatever I had gone out and harvested the year before, I did the cooking and I just invited people over. 
and didn't even ask him to bring anything necessarily. And I did most of the wild game cooking. And it's now morphed into a celebration and a large event where I have friends coming from all over coast to coast, one from Seattle, one from Florida and family and everything in between. And they come a couple of days early for the whole prep because now I let people help me because it's gotten too big and now it's just kind of fun. So we actually do a lot of the prep a night or two before, and that's that's just kind of the fun of it. And then, uh, you know, people are bringing in dishes and I've hosted as many as 120 people before. So it's it's a lot of fun. And I always do a toast prior to, uh, well, people are picking and eating, but prior to like serving the main courses, we do a toast. And I talk about this is a celebration of, you know, our, our hunting heritage and the endeavors that some of us have individually gone on and our our desire to share that that meat or, and that harvest uh with with individuals whether they hunt or not so it's it's a lot of fun and and uh, i'm going to do it until i physically can no longer do it anymore well i want to come again next time that's too much fun and do a few <laughs> <laughs> hey friends let's take a quick break and catch up on some wild game cooking tips ed and i got a little carried away when we were catching up on conservation and so we had to trade emails so i could get his best tips on cooking wild game the biggest mistake people make when cooking wild game is overcooking the meat and as ed put it wild game meat is always 30 seconds away from becoming shoe leather what you don't want is that gamey taste livery kind of taste that uh, most people hate so Ed is suggesting that we shoot for medium rare, at least for the red wild game meat. Now, another thing that comes up is a lot of people think you need a specific recipe for the wild game dishes, but the truth is you can substitute wild game in almost any of your favorite recipes, anything from soups and chilies to burgers and spaghetti. So when we asked Ed for tips on preparing wild game, he gave us three things to think about. You can wet age the game meat by vacuum sealing the meat and letting it sit for several days in the refrigerator. Uh, you can even marinate it overnight or for several days before you cook it. Number two, keep it simple when you're grilling. Ed's recommending drizzling the cut of meat with some olive oil and then seasoning it with your favorite seasoning and that's it. And if you want to explore some new recipes, uh, Ed is a fan of the television shows Meat Eater, Farming the Wild, and Dead Meat. Uh, he also says he loves Hank Shaw's cookbook series on game cooking, and they've got titles like Buck Buck Moose, Duck Duck Goose, Pheasant Quail, Cottontail. So I'll have links to all of those on our blog at thecookbookcreative.com. Now, Back to the show. Tell me about your show. Yeah, so in 2015, I was working a lot in the policy realm. I was working with a, a group uh, based in D.C., a uh, federal policy uh, uh, nonprofit, and I was their chief scientist, and I was liaising science into the policy space. And, you know, a lot of policy is education, and with that comes production of short videos or TV shows in this case. And I got invited to kind of be the sportsman's voice for Sage Grouse on a production with a, uh, a show called This American Land. It's a public television series. Uh, we're in our 11th season now looking to film season 12, but this was season 
five and I uh, got invited to be a participant. And afterwards, I was talking with the executive producer about a week later, giving him some some ideas on some people to talk to and some things to highlight. And he shifted gears and said, uh, well, how, how would you like to host the show? And without even hesitating, I said, you're kidding me with my face for radio. And <laughs> he laughed. And and his point was he wanted somebody right on the right on the front lines and the yeah. fourth conservation and knew the actors, knew the issues and such. Um, I have, you know, four degrees in wildlife and natural resources in some way, shape or form. And so I how who's going to turn that down? Right. So. So I uh, accepted the offer and I've been hosting it uh, ever since. And I love it. It's great. And I'll tell you what it does, Elaine. It takes uh, a nerdy scientist like me and turns you into uh, as, as, as windy as I am now. And, you know, I can I can I can uh, spin a yarn and have the gift of gab. It trains you to be concise and to the point and make it relevant to people. So I always say you have to be able to take complex ecological problems like climate change or or feral horse and burrow issues in Nevada, for example, and their their issues uh, in terms of impacting the, the the desert environment there. You have to be able to make that relevant to to a family in Chicago or a single mom in Detroit or whatever. You have yeah. to make really relevant to people and why they should care not only to watch the show but to walk away understanding conservation just a little bit better so it's been great and um you know unfortunately we lost our our producer recently mm. um and uh we're now uh we're now operating on uh you know how to get season 12 produced but um it, it's it's been a great show and i'd encourage anyone to look up our youtube channel it's called this american land this American land on YouTube. I like that. And I like it so much because, you know, I've spent a lot of time writing and I've worked with a lot of biologists just like you. And the goal has always been to take something that is fairly complex and and tell the story in terms that anybody can understand and appreciate. So anybody who's doing that, I really like to, I liked seeing what you were doing. Yeah, no, it's been a real honor, to be honest with you. It's one of the pleasures of my own entire career. And I never saw it coming, I'll tell you that. When uh, when students or young professionals ask me uh, something about the profession, I tell them, be flexible and watch watch for those opportunities that are just right in front of you and land in your lap and don't don't ignore them and take advantage of them. And I, it's been a real, real pleasure. But the thing I like the most about it is we do highlight not just the issues, but the people. And, uh, you know, coming back to, uh, we always try to, uh, in communicating with folks, we try to we try to let them know how they can make a difference with their mm -hmm. voice, their participation, volunteering, whatever that looks like. But we try to highlight people in, the, in our stories. So you see those on the front lines of conservation. And sometimes they're not even professionally trained natural resource professionals. They just love animals or they love passionate about the wildlife and the land. Absolutely. Yeah. And their heritage. Exactly. Yeah. So talk to me about the geeky side. You you are the the biologist that was the scientist brain that that we started with. That's the one I, that's the guy I met was the scientist brain. 
And huh. you've gone through a lot of phases in your career since then, but kind of what got you from where you were to where you are now? And tell me more about what you're doing in your role now. Sure. You know, I think I would I would hazard to guess 90 plus percent of all wildlife biologists, people that, you know, start in the field. Not a, it doesn't a lot of people are are computer specialists, GIS specialists that you know, get into the profession and they contribute to the wildlife profession. But I'm talking to people that go out and catch bats, for example, or or uh, put radio collars on mule deer or songbirds. They ban songbirds or whatever whatever it is they do. Most will tell you they just want to work in the field early mm-hmm. on in their career. And that's all I really wanted to do is work in the field, work with animals. But gradually, as you garner some talent and some experience and demonstrate some leadership skills, people will ask you to do different jobs. And as you know, I was, you know, at the time when when I was hired at, at Bat Conservation International, I had been a pure researcher. That's really all I had done, minus a stint as a refuge biologist where I was really out in the field every day just monitoring ducks and sandhill cranes and elk and all kinds of stuff. But I, I then became a true research scientist for a number of years, uh, including my initial years at, at BCI. But I also uh, was, you know, part of the senior leadership and had been garnering some leadership skills and ultimately started dabbling a little bit in policy. And when I left BCI, I, I went to this policy group and, you know, that probably um, put the finishing touches on me as a a, a well-rounded conservationist, I guess I would say. So I went from field biologist to manage, you know, doing a little bit in the management space with the Forest Service and in the refuge system to a researcher uh, within a, the timber industry, which gave me a lot of experience about uh, not just the scientific aspects, but also working with a company and interfacing with state and federal uh, agencies and others. Uh, a little bit in the policy space on that. But then uh, when I went back and did my PhD, that, you know, really immersed me a lot more in the academic space than I than I had before. Getting a doctorate degree is just a little bit different, uh, different level of responsibilities, and you're exposed to different things. And so that helped shape kind of where I'm at today. But then the policy work that I did, um, most biologists don't even like policy. Um, and I, I happened to find it intriguing enough. I always uh, said when I heard people giving policy updates, I'm glad you're doing that and not not me. Well, then I became one of the individuals doing the updates and everybody else in the audience like, glad you're doing it, not me. But I found it very rewarding because once you get in the, the mud pit with the pigs a little bit, so to speak, um, and believe me, it can be pretty ugly in, in policy and most of us see what's going on now. But I mean, just the specific details of writing a piece of legislation and and getting it across the finish line, because there's a lot of steps along the way, you realize there's not a whole lot of science that goes into into policymaking unless someone's taking it to the decision makers. All of that put together, you know, the combination of management, field biology, research, policy and and then some leadership uh you know positions along the way kind of helped groom me for this job and and it's rewarding because i've been a member of the wildlife society since 1984 
and have participated in some way, shape, or form at the state chapter level. And and um, so it and and have always been a member and engaged in some way, shape, or form. So it's it's really an honor and a real pleasure. And this is this is where I'll cap my career. Uh, I love so. it. And and it's kind of like a recipe, right? There's so many really ingredients is. to you for this one particular role. And it just seems to have turned out perfectly. And I'm so happy that you're in it. It's you know, running any nonprofit, even if it's your professional society, uh, is like running a business. And if you don't run it like one, you'll run it in the ground pretty fast. Yeah, I've worked with a lot of nonprofits, and I think that's so key. So I hope anybody listening and that is affiliated with a nonprofit takes that away. If you don't run it like a business, especially today, where it's so competitive just for attention from the average consumer or donor, then you're you're going to lose. Somebody's gonna gonna take that space. So it's really important to treat it like a business. Let's flip back to the kitchen for a second. So wow. we'll do a speed round. Let's do it. What food would you never eat again? Hmm. <laughs> I needed these up front. I got to think about that one a little bit. <laughs> uh, boy, there's a lot of things I haven't tried, but um, I'm not big on tofu on a stick. That's for sure. Not a, Okay. Not a I think we can agree to pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite kitchen gadget? Favorite kitchen gadget, a good chef's knife, a very sharp, good chef's knife. So I use that for just about everything. Yep. A good one will serve many, many purposes in the kitchen. Uh, what food can you eat over and over again and never get tired of it? Tacos. <laughs> Who doesn't Fine. say that? Right? Tacos, burrito, pet feed is last night. Any particular kind of taco? Oh, I like hard shells, but, uh, you know, I What's never What's in it? Beef? Chicken? Oh, ground, ground, uh, ground venison. Um, okay. And then the standard toppings. More, more Do you have stuff. a favorite recipe for that you want to share with anybody? I actually don't. Just pretty basic, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> so ground, ground venison with taco seasoning. Taco seasoning and, um, yeah, uh, just cheese and, and lettuce, tomatoes, and the works. Avocado. Yeah. I'll tech mix it up a little bit and put some avocado and uh and um and sour cream and and then I make my own salsa. We've gotten into gardening a little bit more and I've got more salsa than I know know what to do. <laughs> salsa in the garden. All right. Okay. Last question. Uh you've traveled a lot. So when you've been traveling, what is your most memorable food experience when traveling? That's an interesting one. Um, I got to tell you, in South Africa, when I was doing the wind energy and bat work at BCI, the World Bank flew me to um, South Africa and to be in a part of a conference. And then I went on to do my own thing. And my wife and I went to uh, um, a camp in uh, Botswana called the Mashadu Camp. And we sat around what's called a BOMA. British officers mess area. So a little bit of carryover from British colonization, but the way they set it up, uh, that's why they called it a BOMA. It's where the British uh, uh, officers would, would eat. So they set us up that way. And then we were served, I believe we ate kudu, um, impala, and a couple of other meats that had been 
probably taken by by sport hunters but if anybody knows uh, a lot of people think people that go to africa just shoot the trophies well that's a that's a little law called uh, established uh, not called but it's in the fda you can't bring meat from africa or any other country into the united states so that's why you see the trophy heads coming back because that's really in the hides because that's all you can bring back and well believe me the meat gets um consumed every last bit of it and we happen to be eating on some of the game animals that have been shot at a neighboring camp i believe but that was a unique experience so tell everybody how to join the wildlife society so you can check us out at wildlife.org um very simple uh website and um anyone can join we are an open society um we are the professional society of wildlife biologists, the one thing that separates us from just anyone joining and helping support the cause of training the next generation of wildlife professionals, which is what we do, our missions to inspire, empower, and enable wildlife professionals to do their jobs, which is sustain populations and habitats. And so anyone can join or donate. Um, you go to wildlife.org, check us out. Lots of information there. You can learn about what we do. We've been around since 1937. Uh, Aldo Leopold, who I mentioned earlier, was one of our founding members and our third president. So long, long history uh, engagement engagement in the wildlife profession. You can go there and you can join or you can donate. And uh, especially if you're a wildlife biologist, you should be a member of the Wildlife Society. We will spread the word. Thank you so much for being here with me. It was good to catch up a little bit. Uh, I will tell people how to find you and join. So thanks again for being here. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Great. Thanks, Elaine.